Welcome to Leadership Conversations, the podcast of the Sustainability Board, where we explore the latest insights in sustainable leadership, ESG practices, and corporate governance. Each month, we bring you insightful interviews with business and civil society leaders, educators, and advisors who are at the forefront of driving sustainable change. We delve into the challenges, strategies, and innovations that are transforming businesses and boards. Join us as we uncover thought-provoking discussions and actionable insights that will inspire you to take your own leadership journey towards a sustainable future. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast and be part of our growing community committed to making a positive impact. Visit our website at boardreport.org for additional resources and stay up to date with the latest reports, intelligence and conversations. Welcome to a new episode of Leadership Conversations. Today we welcome Beth Sasfai, partner at Cooley. Her practice focuses on advising public and private companies, investment funds and their boards in a broad range of corporate matters, with an emphasis on their ESG matters, including sustainability reporting, board oversight and disclosure controls, and shareholder and stakeholder engagement. Before joining Cooley, Beth served as Verizon's Senior Vice President, Governance and Chief ESG Officer. While at Verizon, she was responsible for the company's ESG strategy, disclosure and related stakeholder advocacy, while leading a cross-functional team of lawyers and sustainability professionals responsible for corporate governance policy and board affairs, ESG commitments, reporting and engagement, business and human rights, digital trust and safety, compliance with corporate and securities laws, legal support to investor relations and external reporting, and advising on other general corporate matters. Beth has more than 20 years of experience, including a strong background in regulatory governance, public policy, and corporate litigation. She also practiced in the corporate and litigation groups of prominent New York City law firms. Beth, I'm very glad that we are meeting today. Thanks so much for your time talking to us. Thanks for having me today, Frederick. Considering your two decades of experience, I probably only have provided a small snapshot of your background. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, your career journey, and your recent switch from a large corporate into private practice again. Sure. I'm always happy to talk about my career journey. It was a little unconventional. I started out in a law firm and went to Verizon for about 20 years and ended up back in a law firm. So it's been a really exciting ride for me. When I moved into Verizon from private practice, I spent a lot of time learning the phone company. And it was an interesting time at the phone company. It was a regulated entity, and I did a lot of rate-regulated arbitrations and a lot of litigation work. And I found myself in front of the Verizon Board of Directors a few times on some significant litigations, reading out to them uh, and working with the committees on the board to you know, exercise oversight of various functions. And... Lo and behold, an opportunity opened up to lead Verizon's governance policy. It was something I was very interested in. And so I you know, accepted that role and that role grew into public company role for me. I ended up overseeing Verizon's public company practice, which included everything from you know, supporting investor relations, 
to its 34 act reporting, to supporting the board of directors and the committees. And eventually that role grew to include responsibility over Verizon's ESG program and commitments and reporting. I became Verizon's first ESG officer about four years ago at the request of the board. And that was what I was doing when I moved to Cooley in March of this year. I decided to come to private practice for a number of reasons, but one of the key reasons that drove me to come is really the idea of being able to kind of scale and help other companies navigate what I found to be a really difficult environment and to help them not only navigate legal requirements and compliance requirements, but really think about practical, operational kinds of problems and creative solutions, which I thought I could really bring from my time in-house. Excellent. And the first time I learned about Cooley was a year or two years ago, I mentioned in a report as one of the most sustainable law firms, in fact, just next to one or two other players. So tell us a little bit about the firm's focus and your approach to ESG counsel. Yeah, Cooley is a really interesting firm. And what really attracted me to Cooley is the breadth of the public company practice and their private company practice. So Cooley has hundreds of companies on its platform. They have a huge amount of startups and emerging companies, and they then we take companies public, so kind of pre-IPO context, more mature kind of private companies as they go public. And then, you know, we really serve as a trusted counsel all the way through their time as a public company. And so from a practice perspective, as a lawyer, I think what's very attractive to both law students and associates and partners like myself is getting to see companies in all these different stages of the life cycle and growing with them. So it's a very rich practice. We focused quite a bit on you know, ESG and sustainability in emerging companies and in the investors that you know fund those companies like venture capital funds and private equity and then all the way through kind of some very you know mature large cap public company advisory practice which you know includes a lot of the kinds of sophisticated things you might might think about Got it. And let's talk a bit about sustainability then. You just mentioned private and public company. We'll get to the differences shortly. But I have a lot of conversations with organizations around reporting, lots of different reporting around the world, lots of new requirements, lots of new standards. Do you feel that sustainability reporting requirements have become too onerous to organizations? And are we you know, losing sight of actual impact, just chasing data? That is a terrific question. Yes, I think that reporting has largely become a compliance exercise. And while I do think that a focus on data is important, right, you need to understand what your emissions profile looks like in order to figure out how to address it and minimize your emissions. Uh, I think right now with the just overwhelming number of frameworks and initiatives, often conflicting initiatives, 
and demands coming from investors, customers, suppliers. It is really challenging for companies to think about anything other than liability and risk. And so most of the conversations I find myself having with clients today are about greenwashing or making sure they understand kind of the regulatory requirements of the reporting. I think what we've lost is this idea of big, ambitious goals. And that's really where we started, right? Wanting to make sure that we're moving the needle. And so I think if we can find a way to return a little bit to those ambitious goals and making sure that we all understand that companies may not meet them. And so really what we want is a transparent kind of culture where companies are able to talk about their challenges and push the envelope to do as much as they can and not have to worry quite so much if they fall short. Can you give us an example of an ambitious goal? Yeah, here's an example. So a goal that looks at your fleet emissions right now would be pretty ambitious, right? We're early on in terms of technology. We're early on in terms of the ability of some companies to get the kind of products that they would need in order to decrease their fleet emissions. And I know a number of companies have been thinking long and hard about what kinds of fleet goals they might set, not having a clear line of sight to where they're going to end up. And those companies right now are very nervous to set those goals because they know they're going to have to report on them with the rigor that they probably aren't prepared to do today. And so those are the kinds of things I think we want to encourage and think creatively about. Of course, you know, we don't want companies to be engaged in greenwashing and we want them to be taking meaningful steps to meet goals. But I do think we need to be realistic. This is an area that is, you know, changing every day. Technology is improving. Companies are getting smarter. And uh, I think we need to really acknowledge that ultimately what we want is to drive action. Yeah, I like that. Thanks for that example. Beth, the following question I was very looking forward to ask you today. And mostly when we have these conversations around reporting, disclosure, fiduciary duties, et cetera, et cetera, we think about public companies, right? Obviously, the scrutiny on public companies is very different because the ownership structure is very different and they are much more accountable to a much larger set of stakeholders. But as you have already alluding to, your firm is doing a lot of work with startups, high growth startups. So I can just imagine that you get a good view into their sustainability and ESG strategies as well. Tell us the differences that you are seeing in private companies and how does this translate into their business operations and governance? Yeah, so I've spent a really significant amount of my time counseling private companies since I've moved to Cooley. And I think they've been a largely ignored population in the ESG conversation. I would agree with that. I guess a few observations. One thing, just thinking as a practical matter from a regulatory perspective, private companies are getting requests for ESG data at an earlier and earlier stage. And this is for a number of reasons, right? Often these requests are coming from their customers who've made goals about emissions in their supply chain or supplier diversity goals, and they need data from these private companies in order to meet their own obligations. Similarly, 
A lot of private companies are surprised to learn that some of their European investors or European customers are subject to various regulatory requirements and need data from them. And very quickly, what we see are companies in an early stage of maturity being faced with you know, multiple due diligence requests on pages and pages of you know, data requests. We see companies in early stages being asked to include various provisions in their contracts with customers that would require them to produce data. And so this has started conversations earlier and earlier with companies that might not otherwise be thinking about ESG. The other thing that I've seen is that I think that environment where the ESG conversation is emerging earlier and earlier is very helpful for startups. And I say that because ESG is such an iterative process, right? It's laying a governance framework. It's thinking about risk management. Then it's building on that. Are you measuring you know, your effectiveness and your impact with data? Are you communicating that to your stakeholders? By focusing on ESG in very early days, I think we've found that we can help companies kind of right-size their ESG efforts, prioritize the ESG issues that they're going to focus on and really embed that into their DNA. So it's not as overwhelming an exercise sometimes as coming to a company later on and trying to build an entire infrastructure. That way you can kind of grow with the company. The ESG strategy grows with this business strategy and operations. Okay, that makes sense. Now let me ask you a different question in regards to that. And I have a subjective observation that there might be startups emerging from a societal problem, for example. The founders might be uh, very purpose-driven, but then as these organizations grow, that purpose aspect is becoming a little bit diminished, shall we say. And that high growth mode is sort of moving them more towards a financial gain rather than the original purpose that they have sought out. Is that something you observe at all as well? So it's an interesting observation. Yes, I've seen that as well. So you think about right now, there are a lot of climate tech startups, right? That's one area that is very hot, healthcare as well. And I think there's something very interesting about companies that have sustainability early on as part of their branding. And I think what we see is those companies are very used to talking about uh, sustainability when it comes to their company. And, you know, their founders may include sustainability messaging every time they speak to their stakeholders. And as a result, I think often companies that are sustainability focused early on don't develop the kind of governance and risk management infrastructure and discipline around things like reporting or processes. And often what we see is they may not have the data to kind of back up what they want to be able to say. You see this a lot when you get to an IPO. In pre-IPO companies, you may have founders who are very used to talking about their commitments and their goals. And when they get to the IPO, they can't say as much as they want because they haven't built that muscle in the company. And so I do think that part of this conversation is early on helping those companies build the discipline and not just assuming everything's fine because they're very comfortable talking about sustainability and it's part of their brand. And I suppose they will also have an issue then with measuring their impact 
right? If they don't Absolutely. have any underlying data that they can sort of showcase or report on. That's right. It's challenging. And also the risk for them is often greater, right? Because the reputational risk of not really being able to demonstrate your impact when sustainability is a key differentiator for you with customers and in the market, you know, is significant. So again, I think having conversations earlier on with a lot of these companies about how they're going to operationalize sustainability and ESG in their company makes a lot of sense. Great. And we have been talking about stakeholders already a little bit. You mentioned uh, regulators, shareholders, clients as well. So if we now look at businesses in general, whether private or public, we have all of these different stakeholders now exerting pressure of an organization. All of these stakeholders certainly have their agenda. And we've seen many papers and thought leadership around potential conflict of interest between these stakeholders. What is your view on that? And what are the stakeholders that you are mostly focused on that you feel have the most impact on organizations? It's funny, right? This space has changed a lot in a very short amount of time. If you'd asked me this question even two years ago, I would have said that investors were absolutely the most impactful voice in this space. I don't see that today. They're certainly an important voice. I do think investors may have gotten out a little bit over their skis in terms of how they approached ESG without a lot of definition, precision, and ability to explain how they're using data and in their investment decisions. And as a result, I think investors have pulled back a little bit in the conversation. What I'm seeing with our clients is that customers have taken the lead. And I've been very surprised to see the volume of demands for engagement from customers who are focused on their supply chains for whatever reason, whether it's to help meet their own climate goals, whether it is because they've made commitments about what their partners should be doing. But I found that customers are very bold and willing to reach out and willing to make difficult decisions if their suppliers can't kind of partner with them in the way that they'd like. The other stakeholder that I think has emerged with, you know, a really powerful voice in part due to COVID are employees. And I think we hear from clients more so lately than in the past that employees are really pushing them to be more transparent, to continue to push on things like climate commitments. And we hear from clients that they are concerned that if they can't meet certain commitments or they don't have you know robust reporting that they'll have to be accountable to their employees and it may affect their ability to attract and retain talent so i think those two populations are really emerging as a force in the conversation today yeah i would agree with you on that one i suppose it is also a question of what jurisdiction or geography you are in you are based in the United States. There's a completely different set of conversation happening at the moment, very much having the investors in crosshairs around what role they are playing. So yeah, it's probably a good thing that employees and customers are driving this conversation. Some of our core followership are from the corporate governance community. What is your outlook for the role of the board regarding overseeing environmental, social, and governance strategy? So I think that 
for today's boards, ESG oversight is an increasing priority. And I think there are a couple of things that flow from that. One is I think that directors need to commit to sort of ongoing learning about subject matters that are really dense and can be fairly complex, right? You need to have a basic working knowledge of what scope three emissions mean. I think you need to have a basic working knowledge of cybersecurity and of AI. Are you an operator handling this day-to-day? No, you're not. But you need to commit to learning more about these emerging areas so that you can oversee them from a strategic perspective. And boards are used to doing this, right? They oversee risks across the board at companies in areas that they're not intimately familiar with. And so I don't think that ESG should be any different. I also think that boards really need to think about what effective oversight looks like and who is doing it. We have a lot of conversations with clients now about what committee ought to be overseeing particular aspects of ESG. And I think some of our clients are a little concerned that there's a lot of duplication going on right now at the board level, right? So often you'll see the NOMGov committee will be the one that has technical oversight of ESG matters and sustainability. But more and more audit committees are asking for information as the reporting is starting to flow there. And we also hear from you know human resources committees that are focused on things like DEI and human capital and talent management. And so I think boards are at a bit of an inflection point right now in trying to figure out how to best manage that so that everyone has kind of the information they need to come up with a efficient and effective strategic oversight module. And one of the things we are seeing is that the CorpGov committee or the NOMGov committee of a particular company may then offer to have different committees sit in on, for example, different presentations so that they're trying to be kind of efficient in that way. Yeah, we can spend many hours talking about how to structure ESG oversight. You're absolutely right. It is stunning to see how sometimes clumsy that topic is right. is built into, into the policies. And committees are certainly a good way of doing that. But the people who are tasked with the actual oversights should also know what they're doing, right? So I like your point on just being familiar with the terminology. I think that's very important. Now we get to my favorite part of the podcast, uh, and that is two questions that we are asking every guest. And the first one is, what is your favorite story of a particular leader or organization that had a big impact on yourself or society at large? I think that one of the most impactful organizations I have seen since I have been in various corporate governance and ESG roles has been the business roundtable. I say that because in 2019, when the business roundtable came out with their statement on the purpose of the corporation, it absolutely changed the conversation that people were having. And I think the focus on stakeholders and viewing different issues from the lens of different stakeholders would not have happened without that statement on the purpose of the corporation. It just elevated the conversation and it did it at a time when, you know, very quickly thereafter, we were in the midst of COVID. And I think it 
that timing also was very impactful because you saw shareholders who understood that employees were key stakeholders during COVID and very much a focus on a company's ability to be resilient, right, and sustainable. And so I think that group just starting that conversation, and I know folks have very different views over whether that made sense, whether companies were effectively adhering to some of the purposes that they stated, but the very fact that they started the conversation about a stakeholder-oriented focus of impact of the corporation, I thought was huge. Let me do something that I never do at this point, which is to give you outspoken kudos to that response, because we never had anybody mention the business roundtable. And I actually mentioned it in the foreword of our last annual report. I also thought that had a huge impact. There is a little bit of a stigma, I think, considering some of the people that are part of it probably considered capitalist at heart. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just think there is a little bit of wrong perception out there, but I think it's a fantastic answer. Thank you, Beth. And then lastly, can you give our listeners one piece of advice that they can make part of their leadership toolkit and start applying today to set them up for more positive societal impact? Yes, I think that leaders today need to focus on prioritization and understand that it is okay to say no to things. If you're really going to make progress, you need to say no to certain things and move forward on other things. So I think leaders should do some sort of formal ESG prioritization assessment so they can, A, know where to put their resources and explain, you know, where they're focusing and get their organizations behind three or four key priorities. But I also think it's equally important for these companies to be able to say, this is where we're focusing. This is why we are not focusing on these things right now, because we've decided X, Y, Z are most impactful for our corporation, and we need to focus our resources and move forward there. I'm all about action here. The power to say no. Very good. Beth Sasfai, partner at Cooley. Beth, it's been a great pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Frederick, for having me. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast and be part of our growing community committed to making a positive impact. Visit our website at boardreport.org for additional resources and stay up to date with the latest reports, intelligence, and conversations.